Genesis chapter 1, the first half of verse 1. In the beginning, actually all of verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we began our study last week in the book of Genesis uh, at the beginning of time itself. We were told there at the beginning of Genesis that it was in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And so the very first mention and first instance, the first moment of time began right there. And then we ran out of time at the end of our Bible study. And what we learned, among other things, is that there's never enough time. The time is finite, uh, and maybe you've discovered that uh, within your life. But we're dealing with the subject of origins as we open in these uh, opening words and opening chapters of Genesis. And what we're discovering is the importance of foundation. If I were to ask you tonight, what is the most important room in your house? I'm sure that all of you would have a different answer for me. Some of you would say it's, uh, you know, the kitchen. Others would say it's the office. Others uh, would say it's the bedroom where we rest. And, uh, you know, and everybody would have a different uh, answer depending on your personality. But I suggest and submit to all of you that the most important room in every house uh, represented here is the basement, And the reason is because it's the basement that holds our houses or walls, the foundation of the house. And without the foundation, you have nothing else. And so without a basement, you have no kitchen or bathroom or den or any any of the other things. And so the foundation always determines the strength of the complete structure. And what we know is that if the foundation of a structure is strong, then the rest of the structure will be secure. And so the Bible teaches us this from the very beginning. Jesus talked about the importance of a foundation in our lives. He said that he that hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock, on a strong foundation. And so God always concerned with the foundation, the unseen strength under the surface that determines the stability of the rest of the structure. In the Proverbs, Solomon said, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. What is that? It speaks of foundation. Laying a foundation in the life of a child when they're young, because if that foundation is strong, then there might be something that's out of place at some point in the future. But when that topples and falls, the foundation will be secure, and they'll be able to build again on something that will ultimately last. Anytime that you want to destroy something, the way to destroy it is to attack its foundation. Because if you can destroy its foundation, then the rest of the structure will fall with it. I think of this as we right now as a nation are watching on our news screens and reading in our 
internet news feeds about this whole thing about taking down the national monuments. Have you heard anything about any of this? You know, and the controversy uh, surrounding what they stood for or what they believed at certain times or what they owned and, uh, and that we should um, take down these monuments because of what they may or may not stand for and what it may or may not reflect upon what we believe in the present time. And and all that is, in my mind, as I watch all this happening, is it is an attack upon the foundation of our country. If we can delegitimize, or if someone can delegitimize the foundation of what made our country what it is, then they can delegitimize its existence in the present course of things. And if you can take out the foundation and say that its foundation was illegitimate, well, then it's only a short step to just say, well, we need to change the entire Constitution because it was written by these men. And you can just see it very clearly for what it is. An attack on the foundation for the sake of toppling the structure, even from within. Now, when we turn it to spiritual things and we consider the importance of foundation, why is it that it's always Genesis that's under attack? Because it's the foundation. If someone can discredit or call to question the accuracy or the truthfulness of the book of Genesis... Well, then the rest of the Bible may or may not be legitimate. If Genesis cannot be trusted, then how do we know that the things that are written concerning the history, concerning redemption, concerning Christ our Savior, concerning anything that's happened, how can we discern what is true and what is untrue? And thus the attack always going after the foundation. Well, where we left off in the very beginning is the very essence of the foundation of all things. And that is that God created the heavens and the earth. If you were to take a poll of the general public, that is every citizen that lives on the face of the planet, and you were to ask their opinion about where the world came from, the origin of the world and life itself, you would get one of two answers. One part would say that there was no creator at all, that everything is just the fortuitous concurrence of accidental circumstance, that natural processes just happened and things evolved and developed into what they are in their present course of things. And the other camp would be that they were created in some way. And then on both sides, there would be a thousand different opinions, you know, in in the, uh, the details of the whole thing. But it would boil down to two basic beliefs. One side would believe that it was created and the other side would believe that it is not created. And what God places before us, every one of us, no matter what side of that opinion scale we're on, is he gives us a body of evidence that we can look at and examine in order to come to our conclusion. And everyone has an equal playing field when it comes to the evidence, because the evidence that we have to examine is the creation itself. So what does the creation itself testify to the heart mind and conscience of humanity concerning the origin and the testimony of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And where we left off last week was right in this portion here where we ask the question and we say, what is the evidence that we hold forth when we say, I believe Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to be absolutely true? And just quickly by way of review, the first 
point of evidence that's given to us right there is the very word that's employed for created when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. It's the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A. And what it means is created something out of nothing. Ex nihilo. That there was no substance that God was working with. He didn't rearrange or assemble materials that previously existed. But he spoke out of nothing and something appeared. And that answers the question that science cannot answer no matter how far it reaches or how hard it tries. Because even if there's a bang or an explosion or something that evolved, there has to be an original substance that banged or exploded or that everything evolved from. And that question of where that something came from cannot be answered by science. And God answers it simply by saying that he spoke it into existence. There was nothing, and then there was something. Hebrews 11, verse 3, that by faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God so that the things that appear were not made of things that do appear. It's spoken into existence by God. Well, moving on from bara. The second thing that is an evidence for you and I that God created the heavens and the earth is the order that we observe, the tremendous order that exists within the creation itself. The second law, the scientific second law of thermodynamics states that systems tend toward disorder. Now, mind you, before we talk briefly about what that law is, Understand that it is a scientific law, not a theory. Meaning that it has been theorized, then tested, hypothesized, and then conclusion has been made that it is absolutely true all of the time. That systems tend toward disorder. Well, what does that mean, that systems tend toward disorder? On Sunday afternoon, my wife took my five children and she left town while I was still here in church. Not because of anything I did. It was premeditated. And she's back, though she left the kids. The story is getting good. (laughs) But when she left, she left me a clean house. And when I arrived home from services on Sunday afternoon, I walked in and things were where they were supposed to be. There was order in the system. However, it didn't stay that way. And I met her this afternoon, and she came back into town, and we grabbed a quick bite to eat before I came to church, and she landed at home. And my final word to her before we parted was, oh, I have good news and bad news. What do you want first? And she said, well, give me the bad news. I said, the bad news is I didn't clean the house before you arrived home. She said, what's the good news? I said, the good news is I didn't mess it up that much. (laughs) I used like one cup and one dish and didn't touch anything, you know, because I don't want to have to deal with it, you know. But I said, but the bed stinks. You know, you'll have to wash the sheets. It's been hot, you know. Systems tend toward disorder unless intelligent, intentional energy is introduced into that system in order to bring order out of chaos. Order never comes out of chaos without some external force playing upon it. So when we look at the order that exists in the universe around us and in the creation itself, the second law of thermodynamics scientifically points to the fact that something made that order the way it was. That order did not come about by itself. Now, what am I talking about when I say order? I'm talking about the cosmos cycles. Things like the rising and the setting of the sun, the moon and its courses. I'm talking about the life cycles of both the plant and animal kingdom, including humans. 
I'm talking about seasons and tides and patterns that we can observe. Something set those things in order in the way that they are to the point where they are so ordered and so accurate that we can measure our lives by them without any worry or fear that anything is going to interrupt those systems or change them. Something arranged those things in order or that order just appeared out of nowhere. No other evidence of that ever happening anywhere else, but it exists there. And when we observe the order in the world around us and in creation itself, we ask the question, how was that order established? Did it happen by chance? And so order and the order of the, the, the creation itself points to the fact that there is a creator. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us who it is, that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Well, point number three concerning the evidence that there is a creator is the complexity that exists within the order on the planet that you and I live within. Now, the more that we learn and observe and inspect the various things that are going on in the world around us, the more we discover how complex everything actually is. Inside the nucleus of just one cell, that make up our bodies, what you and I have. There's something called deoxyribonucleic acid. I got it right, nailed it. Like George W. Bush, remember when he would try to do that? He could never do it. He would try to say something and it just wouldn't come out right, you know? DNA. And what the DNA does inside the nucleus of our cells is that it contains information for the human genome. That is, it determines what we are genetically, our genetics, we might call it. Now, if you were going to type out, as a typist, encode in letters the human genome for just one person, typing 60 words a minute, eight hours a day, it would take you 50 years to type all that information out for just one person. One cell inside your body that consists of trillions of cells, just one cell the nucleus of that cell contains enough DNA that if you were to lay it out end by end, it would be six and a half feet long. And if you were to take all the DNA in your whole body, it would be between 10 and 20 billion miles long. Two grams of DNA has enough capacity to store all the digital information in the known world. Two grams. So cut off your finger. That's maybe about maybe two fingers, two grams. There's enough DNA in those two fingers to store all of the digital information in the entire world. That's pretty complex when you think about what it contains in the whole thing. Think about the geometric pattern in a single snowflake. There's a picture of one coming up on the screen right now. And what we know is if we observe snowflakes is that there's not two of them that are alike. All the snow that has ever fallen from the skies and landed on all the hills and fields of the earth, for all of creation, there are no two of those that are exactly alike. And yet look at the complexity and the pattern of what's made in that whole thing. It's amazing to see the geometric capacity. The Bible tells us in the book of Job that God has a storehouse filled with all of that, that he has the storehouse filled with snow. Now, I want you to see, when, when man needs snow and he tries to make it, and you take the same, same stuff, snow, but a man-made version, this is what it looks like. That's man-made snow. comes out of the snow sprayers and, you know, helps us ski on 
you know, in seasons, the whole thing. You look at what God can do versus the best man can replicate in his desire to try to produce something that God just makes naturally. It's an amazing thing to look about. I've told you guys in, in a study not too long ago that we started to raise honeybees. And so I've learned a lot about honeybees just over this past summer. And what I've learned about them is that there is a complex system that exists within the hive. A complex system of identification wherein they can tell if a bee is from their hive or not. There's a whole group of them that's dedicated to sanitation, another to storage, another to production, another to population and population control, another whole group that's dedicated to defense, and another that's dedicated to the expansion of the hive. And when you look into it more and more and you see the ways in which they communicate and the order that exists in the complexity of just a beehive, it blows your mind to realize the complexity that exists in something as simple as a beehive. If you were going to go in a spaceship and you landed on Mars, and so you, you, know, you land in your little thing and you're there to explore and to bring back word and evidence of what you see there and you're looking for signs of life and you were walking on the planet Mars and all of a sudden your, your foot in the dust hits something and you look down and you pick it up and there in your hand is a perfectly formed wristwatch. And you just picked the thing up, and it had two hands, a little hand and a big hand, and it had the second hand, and it had the little Roman numerals going around the circle, and a little whining and a band and the whole thing. And you picked that thing up. What conclusion would you come to when you picked up that wristwatch and you held it up and you observed it? You would think someone was here, right? Why? Because of the order and the complexity of what it is that you're holding in your hand. Now, I have five kids, which means I have broken things all over my house. And so I found a broken watch. And so I broke it a little bit more, and I took the pieces of that watch, and I put them in this brown paper bag. And you know what I did this afternoon? All afternoon, I went like this. And then I looked inside. It's still broken. And I started to think, well, how long would I have to shake this bag in order for the contents of this bag to assemble themselves in such a way that I would have a perfectly functioning wristwatch? And you know what the conclusion I came to was? Is that I have to shake that bag for a long, 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 long time. Because it's just reasonable that when we see something that's complex and something that's ordered, that we realize that that something was assembled by an intelligent force that knew what it was doing. And so when we see the complexity of the systems and the creation of this world, it leads us to the conclusion that something made it. It didn't just simply happen by chance, especially something as complicated as DNA or a snowflake or a beehive. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The fourth mark of evidence that we have, that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is absolutely true, is something that's called irreducible complexity. Now, we talked about complexity, and that is, you know, what we just mentioned. But irreducible complexity, what that means is that when you take something that's complex and you try to simplify it, meaning that you're going to remove something from the complex system, what are you left with once you reduce it? And the answer is, if it's irreducibly complex, you have nothing. Because it's either one thing that functions as a total whole, or if you subtract something from it, it is absolutely useless and it does nothing. Now, I call to your attention the two things that you're using painfully to look at me right now with, your eyes. 
Just one of your eyeballs is two and a half centimeters long. And yet there are over two million moving, working parts that make your eyeball do what it does. That's an amazing thing to consider. Your eyeball, well, if you're young in here and you don't yet wear corrective lenses or <laughs> need something to help you see, but a properly functioning eyeball is more complex than any camera that's ever been developed by man. I mean, just think for one minute the high-definition resolution that an eyeball, a healthy eyeball, is capable of perceiving. I mean, even a camera, if you turn it from something that's near to something that's far, you have to either manually focus it or wait for the autofocus to figure out how far away it is. Our eyes do that almost instantaneously. I look at the back of the room, and I see Phil back there pretty clearly in spite of these lights. I look over here, and I see Vinny and Ro, and I see them with clarity even though they're close, and I don't have to wait and say, okay, yes, positive idea on that whole thing. That's an amazing thing. Most cameras can't even do that. For one moment in here, I want all of you right now to just picture in your mind a school bus and a school bus wheel. Can you all do that? Do you know why you can do that? Because you've seen it before, and your eyeball records in real time everything that you see, and it stores it in your mind, and it can recall it just like that. And on the screen of your mind, you can just bring up everything that you have ever seen back into your mind. Just think about how remarkable and how intense that is. But here's the amazing thing. If you were to take one of the parts of your eye that make your eye does what it does, and you were to remove it from your eye, do you know what you'd be left with? Two and a half centimeters of garbage. Because your eye can't function without all of those parts working properly in tandem. If you were to take let's say all or part of or even one of those parts and just make it so that it's not completely developed yet. It's partially developed. It's halfway to becoming a retina or an optic nerve or a lens or a cone. It's just part of the way there. It's almost there, but it's not. Do you know what you have? Nothing. You have an eye that can't do what an eye was designed to do because it needs all of its parts in order to do what it was made to do. Otherwise, it can't do it. And so an eyeball is irreducibly complex, which means it cannot have evolved from something. It's either all or nothing. It didn't start somewhere as a wart and then realize that it needed help finding food and it could feel it and hear it, but it couldn't identify it. And so it turned into an eyeball over a long period of time. It's absolutely impossible because it's irreducibly complex. There's a lot of things in this world that are irreducibly complex, but it points to the fact that things were created, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that in the beginning it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Consider also, fifthly, in terms of this evidence, the environmental conditions that you and I live in and interact in as we walk through this world. We had the eclipse this week, and we were all reminded of the earth-sun-moon relationship. And just to think, the diameter of the earth is about 8,000 miles through. If you were to pierce, pierce it right through, just the diameter of the earth itself, 8,000 miles. The diameter of the sun is a whopping 864,000 miles in diameter. So just think about the difference between the earth and the sun, 8,000 versus 864,500. And the diameter of the moon is just 2,159 miles right through. So a small moon, a little bit larger earth, and then a magnificently sized sun. The
The sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. The moon is just outside a few thousand miles outside of our earth's atmosphere. And yet if you put the things in a perfect line, what do you observe about them? To the observable eye, they're roughly the same size in their appearance. And what we realize is that the distances that they represent in their respective places are absolutely critical to the survival of life as we know it on Earth. If the sun were further away than 93 million miles, we would be too cold and life wouldn't be sustained. If it was closer, we would all burn up, it would be too hot, and the Earth wouldn't be able to sustain life. The moon in its place, in its orbit, keeps the earth in balance. It moves the waters and the tides. If the moon was any closer to the earth, by the way, the earth, did you know that the moon is moving away from the earth each, each year by a certain amount? I wasn't going to bring that up because I can't prove that. I don't actually have a ruler and I don't like to just like spout off things I read, you know, even though I read it in a lot of places. But I just think about this for a minute. If the moon is moving away from the earth, at a certain measurable degree each year, just add that back on for 20 million years or 200 million years. You know what happens? The tidal waves drowned the, 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 the hemispheres twice a day. Every time the, 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 the tide raises up, the magnetic pull of the moon is too strong, the whole earth drowns. It goes around to the other side, the land all comes back, and the other side drowns. How do you survive in that kind of an environment? And yet the moon in its place perfectly put there that the tides rise and fall and it regulates and, and does things in the ocean that are, that are important. It keeps the earth in balance in its place. All of it perfectly set there by God in these things. The air composition that you and I breathe, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and then less than 1% argon, carbon dioxide, neon, and a little bit of helium just so that we would hate what we sound like when we hear ourselves recorded. But the balance and ratio of that air, perfect for our lungs. It was the same ratio 6,000 years ago as it is today, and it will continue to be that. Perfectly balanced. Made that way by God for you and I. The ratio of land to water. The earth is about 30% land to 70% water. And what that does is it stabilizes global temperatures. If there was more land and less water, things would be too hot. That water acts as an air conditioner for the world. It keeps global temperatures stable the way that they are. It also contributes to rainfall distribution, making sure that there's rain that can potentially fall in every place, meaning that there'll be enough food for man to eat. The 70% water coverage of the earth is critical to oxygen production as 60% of the carbon dioxide that is processed is done so in the water and greenhouse gases also absorbed by the water itself. All of that goes out of balance if you change that ratio. And so it's critical for our envi environmental survivability that things are the way that they are. Now, if we take all of these things and just, just, this just scratches the surface, the order, the complexity, the irreducible complexity, the environmental conditions. I mean, this is just nothing. It's a minute little piece of the evidence that's before us every day that God created the heavens and the earth. We haven't talked about the complexities of just a blade of grass. I mean, remember George Washington Carver, and maybe you've heard the story, how he became a Christian. He was so enamored with the power of God that he said, God, show me the secrets of the universe. And then as he said that, he realized how arrogant it was to ask such a thing. And so he said, God, I'm not worthy to know the secrets of the universe. He said, show me the secrets of the peanut. And God showed him 260-something uses for the peanut. He invented peanut butter. Thank God. You know? 
It's amazing to realize the evidence that, that's before us. Carl Sagan, that evolutionist and great opponent of Christianity, applied for a government grant a number of years ago, and it was to seek for intelligent life somewhere else in the universe other than the planet Earth. And when he was going through the application process for the grant, he was asked the question, well, how will you know when you have found it? How will you know if you found intelligent life in other places of the universe? How are you going to do it? And his answer was, I want to put super sensitive instrumentality in the outer atmosphere of the earth that will pick up radio signals from distant space. And when those signals are received, we'll look for order and pattern, which will demonstrate that the signals were transmitted by intelligent life. Now, just think about how stupid that is. Here's a guy who says that this world came about from nothing, and yet every single day he's put face to face with intelligent signals that contain order and pattern that testify to the fact that there's a creator. And yet he denies that there's a creator. But he's going to recognize intelligent life when it hits him from outer space, even though he can't find it when it's right in front of his eyes every day. There's ample evidence to prove that God created the heavens and the earth, even as it says in the book of Genesis. It's right in front of us every day. So the question that remains as we consider this and we think about it is why does man, as we read in Romans chapter 1 in our text this evening, why does man continue to ignore, suppress, and malign the evidence that is ever set before him of the existence of a creator and that creator being the God of the Bible? One of the reasons that man suppresses this truth and doesn't want to acknowledge it, even though the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear, is because if I acknowledge the evidence and acknowledge God as creator, then what that makes me is it makes me a created thing. And there's something inside of me that doesn't want to be created. I want to be autonomous. I want to be my own God. Because if I'm created, then that also makes me accountable. It means that there's a force or something that's higher than I am, that's stronger than I am, that ultimately I am going to have to answer to, and I, quite frankly, don't want to answer to that. It's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 3, verse 17, he said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And so Jesus answers the question with crystal clarity when he says that the reason why people don't want to acknowledge the evidence that there's a creator is because they want to continue to walk in their own ways without accountability or answerability for the decisions that I make and the behavior that I produce, the things in this life, and I want my conscience to be clear in the light of all of those things. One of the things that happens often in this world, is that mankind, humanity, divorces his ideals or the things that he believes, the things that we believe, from the reality of human nature and the things that exist within ourselves. 
And then what happens is that we don't account for the consequences of doing so. And so the reality of human nature is that we're fallen by human nature. Where we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That we are inverted to a place where we put self first in all things and everything else comes after that. That's human nature. Me first. We put the I right in, in the very forefront of fallen humanity. That's what we are. And then we come up with an ideal that there is no creator. And so we divorce the reality of what we are from the, the truth of things. And, and then we think that there's not going to be consequences on the other side of it. And so what happens? As I say, well, I'm not created. I am autonomous. And I'm not accountable to anyone. And, and I'm my own God. And I can do whatever I want. Now I go out and live that way. And so do you. And what happens? Well, we take our cues from the animal kingdom. It's the strong survive. It's the law of the jungle. And who are you to tell me otherwise? And if there's no God, if there's no one that I'm accountable to, if there's no moral ideal or standard that I have to live up to, then who are you to tell me that I can or can't do whatever it is that I please? And all of a sudden, all order is thrown out the window and we just do whatever the heck we want. And who has the right to tell anyone anything is wrong? If I want to think I'm a chimpanzee and that that's what I, I am, that's my, my natural identity. It's what I closely relate to inside my heart. That's what I am. And who are you to tell me otherwise? And you have absolutely no authority or ground to stand on to tell me something else. That's what I am. It's what I believe. It's what I am. If I believe I can behave a certain way, then who are you to tell me that I can't? Because we have no standard. There's no ground. There's no moral ideal. There's nothing. We're all just here. It's just an accident. So we all can just do whatever we want. And thus, once we remove God from the equation, once we take out the fact that God created the heavens and the earth, we have a human race that does, believes, stands upon anything that they want, and no one has the right to stand up against it. It's amazing that we still have laws, because who has the right to make a law? Who determines whether or not a law is good or bad, or if a law is righteous or fair? Is murder wrong? Who says? Why? Why not? If you offend me, I, I should have the right to kill you because you offended me. You wounded my pride, and I'm God. I'm my own God, and only the strong survive. And so who are you to tell me that I can't kill you? And do you see where we slide into once we remove the reality of human nature from our ideals? And yet that's what man does. Have you heard about this newest thing, universal basic income? Have you read anything about that? Some of the real, real, real rich people in the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Richard Bransons, the Elon Musks, they're proponents of this new idea that every citizen of the world should just get a universal basic income. Everyone should just get a check each week. You don't have to work because we have robots now. And robots are producing all of the labor, and therefore the profit is being earned by them, and they're lifeless. So everyone now can just get a paycheck even though you don't work. And what this is going to do is that this is going to unlock the entrepreneurial monster that lives within you because now that your creative powers aren't being quenched by a nine to five wherein you have to do things, now you'll be able to really bring humanity to the next level. Do you know what that is? That's divorcing our ideas from the reality of human nature. Oh yeah, you're going to give me a paycheck every week and I'm going to do nothing for it. Oh yeah, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pound the pavement and I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm not going to use it on drugs. I'm not going to gamble. I'm not going to spend it wastefully. 
No way. This favor that's been given to me by the government, do you see the folly of it? But you free money? (laughs) Man, these geniuses. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens. I become accountable when I believe in a God. If there is no God, does that produce freedom? Or does it produce anarchy? I believe the third reason why people suppress the evidence is because it makes us vulnerable. And I think this is an honest answer for some people. They say, you know what? No, you know, I hear what you're saying and I see it. It exists in the world. Certainly there's lawlessness and sinfulness. And yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm not, I'm not trying to hide from that and the whole thing. But my issue with a creator, my issue with a God that I'm accountable to is not that. That's not it. My issue is the vulnerability that that produces. Because if I'm created by someone, and if someday I'll stand before someone, and if ultimately I was made to serve someone, then who is that someone that made me? What does he require of me? And what does that mean? Who is he? And quite frankly, it scares the daylights out of me to think about what that might mean in terms of my eternity, that there might be a God that I might have to stand. Who is that God? I remember there were two movies that I saw um, in the year leading up to my salvation that, that scared me to death and, and literally kept me up at night, though they were not horror movies. One of them, and, and maybe you know it, maybe you don't, one of them was called The Truman Show. And it was this movie about this man who his whole life he was the subject of a TV show and he didn't know it. And so every day he would live his life and there were cameras and he lived in this little bubble and everything was watching him and everyone was watching him all the time. And anytime he would come close to discovering it, they would do something to pull the wool over his eyes and this was his existence. And I remember seeing that movie and I left angry because something inside, I knew that, I knew that there was some truth in that, even though I wasn't saved, that there's, there's a kingdom, there's something more and, and I just was so angry, and yet I felt vulnerable. I felt afraid. What does it mean? Who am I being controlled by? Who will I answer to? The other movie was Enemy of the State, where this guy was trying to get away from the government. No matter what he did, they could find him. Satellites, bugs, speakers, you know, things, microphones, the whole thing. Nowhere to hide. And I just remember seeing those two and being so scared because I felt so vulnerable. Who is watching me? Who? And, you, and, and that was the thing. One of the things that kept me from giving my life to God is I didn't know who he was. And if I give my life to him, then what is it that he's going to require of me? Who is he? And what will that ultimately mean for my eternity? And will I like it or not? And it was a vulnerability issue to me in the whole thing. So people suppress the truth, as Paul said in Romans. They hold it in unrighteousness. They don't want to come to God. Well, what does creation reveal to us about who our God is? It testifies that there is a God, but what does creation reveal about God? It reveals to us, first of all, his greatness. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says it like this. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted or measured out heaven with the span, meaning that the the breadth of the heavens is measured by the span of God's hand from the tip of his thumb to the end of his pinky. That's how God measures the whole entire universe. And comprehended or counted or understood the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. That's an amazing thing to consider about the size of our God. When we think about how big the universe is in 
comparison to ourselves, and yet the whole thing spans his hand. That he can take all the waters of the whole earth and he can just, it can be just like that little raindrop that lands right in the middle of the palm of his hand and he can look at it, he can say, hey, that raindrop equivalent to all the waters of the oceans on the earth. Amazing, remarkable. All the dust of the earth in his measure, he can measure it, he knows how much there is. And when we look at the intricacies of the infinite size of God, both in the big and in the small, we see that he is an amazingly great God. He's great. Creation also reveals God's wisdom. I challenge you this week sometime to read the book of Job, chapters 38 to 42, the last four chapters of the book of Job, where God reveals himself to Job after his long trial. And God just says, Job, sit down and listen. I want to ask you a few questions. And he says, where were you when I? That's the preface. And then he goes on and he talks about, where were you when the sons of God shouted for joy when I spoke the world into existence? Where were you? And he just goes on and on and on talking about the glory of his creation. He says, did you create Leviathan with a scale so that no water can pass through? Do you understand how any of that works? And he just goes through it. It's amazing to consider the wisdom of God and what he's made. When you read Psalm 19 and the messages that God has placed in the heavens, the testify of his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and his word. When you read Psalm 104 and it talks about the cycles of life and the way that God provides. When you read Ecclesiastes and the observations of Solomon and, and the water cycle described in, 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 in perfect order the way God made it. You realize that everything that God made testifies of his infinite wisdom that he knows what he's doing. That nothing is left to chance. That there's not one thing that falls to the ground without him knowing it. That he's perfectly ordered in what he does and nothing Nothing is going to slip through his fingers. He's infinitely wise. Creation reveals concerning our God his goodness and his kindness. When you consider the ways that he provides and the way that he builds the environment and the stability of all things, creation reveals his power and that he is to be feared and revered. I mean, we had those storms roll through last night. Anybody hear those? And every one of us is shaken. Something happens when lightning and thunder happen simultaneous, no? And that crack, it just pierces right to the very core of you. And you realize the power of things. I watched a newsreel this week of a man who was whitewater rafting up in Alaska. And his kayak tipped over and he got caught in a rapid where the water was pushing over his body from the back and he got caught in the rocks there. And his head was kind of right at the top of the waves and, and the water was billowing around the sides of the back of his head in a way where he could still get air, but he was trapped by the force of the water. And somehow someone caught him with a rope and they were trying to pull him out of the rapids, but they couldn't free him from the rapids and he couldn't free himself. And he fought against the strength of that water, of just this one river that was forcing this guy over. He fought it as long as he could, and then you just watch his strength give way, and he goes under the water, and his head disappears. And then someone from behind jumps into the river, follows the rapid down, grabs a hold of the guy, and the two of them come out together. And, you know, there's incredible salvation that happened. You know, this courageous guy jumped in and, and saved this other guy. But if you've ever been in a position like that where you felt the power of the earth in some way and you realize the greatness and the glory of the power of God, it's revealed in his creation. His trustworthiness is also revealed through his creation. That if God can create and sustain all that he has created and all that he can stains, sustains, then what can't he do? 
Right now, the earth that you and I are sitting on as we sit in this room and talk about these things, it is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Did you know that? Right now, you are spinning 1,000 miles an hour. I'm not talking about your head. I'm talking about your physical body in the rotation of the earth right now, spinning 1,000 miles an hour. At the same time the earth is spinning 1,000 miles an hour, the earth is revolving around the sun at a rate of 18 and a half miles per second. So that means every second that goes by, you just moved 18 and a half miles while you're spinning 1,000 miles an hour. Our solar system, our sun all the way out to Pluto, our solar system is spinning in the Milky Way galaxy right now at 155 miles per second. So the entire solar system in which the Earth is moving, in which it's also spinning, is also moving itself 18, uh, I'm sorry, 155 miles per second through the Milky Way galaxy and its arms and its bands. The Milky Way galaxy is also moving through the universe right now at a rate of estimated to be 185 miles per second. And so the galaxy is moving in which the solar system is moving, in which the earth is revolving, in which it is also rotating and spinning. I don't know how to compound all of that to, to even communicate to you what is going on that you and I are absolutely unaware of right now as we just sit here in our stillness and everything is just held in perfect control. But you know what amazes me about all that? Is that if you leave here tonight and you look into the northern sky and all of this universe and its hundreds of trillions of galaxies as they estimate and its span that we have no comprehension of, but God just, you look in the northern sky tonight, you know what you're going to see up there if it's clear? You're going to see the North Star. Just follow the handle of the Big Dipper to its end. Just move until you see the star lonely sitting there that that handle is pointing to and just sits right there. And you know what? That star, the North Star, it doesn't move. It's just there. Everything else, in the, everything else moving. That star doesn't move. You know what that means? All this crazy that's going on everywhere else, God's got it in perfect, stable control right now Psst. just watching it spin the whole thing inside and the bible says that he knows every thought that we think and that his thoughts towards every one of us outnumber the grains of sand that are on the seashore of every ocean in the world including underneath the surface of those waters that's the capacity of our god that's his trustworthiness and what he says to you and I is he says, will you acknowledge, based on the evidence that I've set before you, that I am a God who is greater than anything that you can comprehend. My wisdom goes beyond anything that you can comprehend or imagine. My ability is beyond what you can comprehend or imagine. And I hold your life, your very breath in the palm of my hand. And I'm offering you eternal salvation, a relationship with me, in a landing place where you can set your life on a foundation where it will stand up and won't fall down. Will you look at that evidence? Will you receive my person and place your trust in me? He is absolutely trustworthy in all of his ways. The musicians can come as we close tonight. We will move on from this now uh, as we go on in the next week. But I want to share this with you uh, as by way of a final thought. It really is a final thought. It's not going to be 10 more minutes away.
On the night of Jesus' Last Supper, when he was with his disciples in the upper room after three and a half years of ministry, and knowing full well what he was about to face in the cross on the next day, he finally sat down with his disciples and the table had been set and everything had been been prepared and the bread was there before him and the cup and he knew what he was about to do. And inside the agony of the cross was already stewing. His face has already been set like a flint. He knows what's coming. But he looks across the room at those 12. And it's recorded in scripture, which means he was looking beyond them and he was seeing right into this room here tonight. And he said to them, he said, with desire, with great desire, have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know that the suffering was in his mind. He says it. But he says, with great desire have I desired to to, to eat this Passover with you. Why? What is it about this Passover, this night, that, that has caused Jesus to say, it's come to this point now. I've been waiting for this moment for all of this time, and now it's finally here. And with desire, I'm here to do this for you. And then he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Everything that you have ever interacted with in the entirety of your existence has boiled down to this one thing that I want you to understand, that I want you to know about God, that I want you to know about me, that this body, all of this exists, everything that's here exists because this body is going to be broken for you. And this cup, Everything that not only exists, but everything that you've ever done, believed, participated in as a nation, as an entity, revolves around this cup. Do you know what this cup is? This cup is my blood, and it's the blood of the new covenant. And what this blood, what this cup represents is the forgiveness of your sins in the only way it's possible for fallen man to come back into a relationship with a holy God. And I'm doing this for you. It's broken for you. It's poured out for you. Now take and drink of it. All of it. And the entirety of what Genesis 1-1 was looking forward to when God created the heavens and the earth was boiling down to that moment when he would say, with desire, I have waited 4,000 years to give to humanity this gift of my broken body and my shed blood. Because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice. The wrath of God poured out on him for our forgiveness. If we would but acknowledge, if we would believe, if we would repent, if we would trust. The evidence is there. Do we believe? Will we receive this God who is ultimately trustworthy? Father, we thank you tonight as we consider these things. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the beginning of the creation of God. We thank you tonight, not only that you created, but we thank you for who you are in being the creator. Oh God, we thank you so much tonight that you're not a tyrannical, oppressive, unstable, unqualified, unfit keeper of what you make, but that you hold all in perfect order and perfect peace in your hand. 
And what we bring to you tonight, oh God, is lives on this side of the chaos in a world that spins and turns with lives that are filled with uncertainty, circumstances, situations that are too heavy for us, doubts, fears, anxieties, worries, cares, issues, sins, struggles, burdens, broken hearts, broken bodies, broken minds, insecurities. And we're asking tonight, God, that you would give us a fresh revelation of what it means to be in Jesus Christ. We profess faith in you tonight, Lord. We believe in who you are. We believe in what you've done and what you've said. And we believe that you desire to be God in the same way that you are over creation. That you desire to be God over our lives. And we want to give you place to do that here tonight. For anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you personally, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would soften them to be able to receive your grace and your salvation. I pray for those of us here that do know you, that perhaps have grown cold or distant, or have become so consumed with the things of this life or the busyness of these days that we've forgotten that you're the reason we're alive. That tonight, Lord, you'd remind us that seated upon a throne, residing, presiding over the third heavens, you are God. For you know the thoughts that you think towards us, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring us to an expected end. So, Lord, renew, refresh, give healing, restore, rebuild. Refocus, re-energize our lives, and help us. And Father, I pray tonight that you would equip us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to carry this message, to hold our heads high, to be strengthened, Lord, for the battle that we're in as we wait for your return. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Establish them in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?